0: You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson.
1: So tonight's Bible reading is from John 1 verses 43 to 51, and you can find it on page 861 in your pew Bibles. you will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man.
0: Good evening, everyone. Uh, My name's Tim. I'm the senior minister here at St. John's. And uh, I'd love you to have your Bibles open to that passage uh, that Ella just read, page 861, uh, because we're going to have a look at it as we think about it together. Who's heard the phrase, six degrees of separation? A few people. So the basic idea of uh, the saying, six degrees of separation, is that you can take any two people in the world and you can connect them together through a series of relationships through people. So uh, the first person might work with the second person, then the second person went to school with a third person, Third person happens to be the dentist of the person that you're trying to connect them to. Okay? And the theory is that uh, any two people in the world can be connected through six steps or six degrees of separation. Uh, you may not have heard of the spin-off of this, which is six degrees of Kevin Bacon. A uh, few nodding heads. Kevin Bacon, uh, movie star, um, Footloose... Is one of the movies he's been in, Apollo 13. Uh, He's been in a stack of movies, which is where this comes from. It's kind of like a game. If you name any actor, the theory is that you can connect them to Kevin Bacon uh, in six steps or less uh, through connecting with another actor who's acted with an actor who eventually has acted with Kevin Bacon, Okay. So let's take an example, Aussie actor Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe was in A Beautiful Mind with Ed Harris. Ed Harris and Kevin Bacon appeared in Apollo 13 together. So Russell Crowe's bacon number is two. Okay, this is a real term, by the way, a person's bacon number. He's got the bacon number of two. The point of all of this is that people are connected to each other. Uh, through different relationships. And when you, when you put all the relationships together, what you get is, is kind of a web of social relationships. Uh, you see that, don't you, in social media? So on Facebook, you might have a list of friends, but your friends have their friends. And things spread very fast through social media, uh, for both good and for bad, because of all the connections that people have with each other. So with the rise of social media, we see the influence of social networks, But social networks are not something which just developed because of technology. They've existed for ages. They've just exercised themselves in different ways. Uh, And in this chapter, uh, John chapter 1, what you see is different networks of relationships uh, which result in people coming to follow Jesus uh, for the first time as people share what they've learnt about Jesus with other people. So a bit of background, because not everyone's been around all January, people have been coming and going, so I just want to tell you where we've come from and how we've sort of seen what's been happening. So we started the series looking at a guy called John the Baptist. John was kind of this, this prophetic figure, this, he was a bit of a wild man, he lived out in the desert, he wore crazy clothes, uh, and he was calling on people to turn back to God, to change the way that they were living and turn back to God. And he got a group of followers a, group of disciples who listened to his teaching and went around with him. But when Jesus came along, John didn't say, no, stick with me. He said, Jesus is the guy that you need to follow. He pointed people to Jesus and some of the people who had been following him stopped following him because of him pointing to Jesus and they started following Jesus instead. So we met two people, Andrew and another guy who's not named, Probably John, who's writing this book. He doesn't like to mention his own name in this book much. Um, So it's probably uh, John. But Andrew and John start following Jesus because John the Baptist points to Jesus and said, this guy's good, start following him. So they do. Then last week, we saw that Andrew goes and tells his brother, Simon, about Jesus. And Simon comes to Jesus and starts following Jesus. He even gets a new name, the name Peter, and eventually this guy becomes the leader of the worldwide church. Uh, This week, in our Bible reading that Ella brought to us, we met two other people, Philip and Nathaniel, who start following Jesus as well. So here's what we read in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So reading this, it seems pretty straightforward. The action shifts. It's been hanging around the Jordan River where John the Baptist has been baptising and the action kind of moves north up to the region of Galilee uh, as uh, Jesus and the people who've started following him uh, move up north. And it seems like what happens, uh, just as it's read here, is that Jesus directly approaches Philip and says, follow me. And then Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel uh, and tells him about Jesus as well. Uh, And throughout this chapter, a whole bunch of people start following Jesus. And every one of them come and start following Jesus because someone else tells them about Jesus and invites them to come and meet Jesus. The one possible exception is Philip. It seems like Jesus goes to him directly, but actually it's a little bit more ambiguous than that. So if you take a literal translation of this um, from the original language it was written in, uh, this is what it actually says. The next day, he decided to leave for Galilee and found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. So the question is, who's the he? Right? It could be Jesus. That's a, that's a fair way to go with it, and that's the way uh, our church Bibles have gone with it. But it could also be Andrew. Another possibility is that Andrew is the he. He decides to leave for Galilee, and he goes and finds Philip, brings him to Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me. That would make sense if you've got your Bibles there and you look back at verse 41. When Andrew starts following Jesus, it says in verse 41... The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon. It could be that that was the first thing he did, and now we're reading about the second thing he did. Why say the first thing if there wasn't something else that he did? We don't really know at the end of the day, and look, frankly, it doesn't matter. But the point is that it's either everyone in this chapter or everyone with one exception who comes to start following Jesus because someone else makes the connection and shares what they know about Jesus with their friends or family. And it all comes through natural and pre-existing connections. So there's family connections. Andrew and Simon are brothers. There's geographical connections. So we're told that uh, Philip lived in the same town as uh, Simon and Andrew, the town of Bethsaida. They'd grown up together, so there was this sort of geographical connection. Friendship connections... Philip goes to Nathaniel, his friend, and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus, and introduces him to Jesus. Um, As a staff team, we were talking late last year about how should we as a church go about trying to uh, reach out to people who don't know Jesus and share him with them? What sort of strategies should we put in place for evangelism as a church? And we recognise that not everyone is super confident at sharing all about their faith with other people. Uh, some people are really gifted at it, really passionate about it, um, and that's great, but other people feel uh, less confident, shyer, um, not as sure about what they would say. And so we're trying to work out what would be a reasonable baseline expectation for all of us. What could we all do, do you reckon, um, regardless of how passionate or gifted we are or how long we've been a Christian. And we came up with this list of four things, and I'd love um, for you to give feedback on this and what you think. Uh, Is this setting the bar too high, too low? Is this something that you could do, do you reckon, with this list? So the first thing is, have friends outside the church. That sounds basic, that sounds easy, but sometimes in churches people get so tied up in relationships with other people who are Christians, other people from church. Uh, It's always hanging out with our life group and church people. Sometimes we have to actually be intentional about making sure that we're not just spending time with other people from church, joining a sporting club, being in a local community group, whatever. For some of you, that's not an issue, but for others, that's something we need to think more intentionally about. Secondly, pray for them. Again, that sounds basic, but this is actually the absolute key. So our vision that we came up with as a church last year puts it like this. We pray expectantly, confident that God changes things as we pray. Now, if that's true, and I absolutely believe that this is true, personally, then if we pray for those that we know who do not yet know Jesus... God changes things as we pray. God will work in their hearts and lives. Thirdly, be ready to answer questions. Now, we might not feel like we've got all the answers, and if we don't feel like we know an answer when someone asks us a question, we should just say, I have no idea, I don't know the answer to your question. I'll try and find out. We should be honest if we don't know the answers to questions. But the Bible does call Christian people to... Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. That's the way the Bible puts it. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. So when people see something different, when people learn that we're a Christian, that we have something that we're hoping for and looking to, which is just beyond the normal stuff of this world, and they ask us about it, how come you're a Christian or what is it that you believe? We need to be ready to answer that question, to be able to tell them something about why we think Jesus is worth following or what it means in our own lives, to be ready to answer questions when people ask us. The fourth thing is inviting other people to things. Offering an invitation to something that's running, whether it's to Sunday at 6, whether it's to your life group, depending on how your life group operates and whether you're sort of open to have other people come along, Um, Inviting people to check it out and to see what's going on, to find out more about Jesus, to connect more uh, with other Christian people. Uh, Inviting people to some events that will run through the year which are sort of uh, a bit less threatening, uh, but a good way to sort of connect with other church people. So those are the four things. I'd love to know what you think about it and whether those four things are things that you think, yep, I could do that. I reckon I could do that. Some Some of them might stretch me a bit but I reckon I could do that. We think this is something that everyone can do um, and it's something that we should be aiming to do together. Because you never know the power of doing these things and the power that an invitation can have. Put your hand up if you have heard of Albert McMaken. Albert McMaken. That's not him. That's not him. We'll go back. I'm glad no one put their hand up. That was my intention, that no one would know of him because he's actually not a famous person. Uh, he was a farm worker working on a farm in the southern, uh, uh, southern part of the USA. But he did offer a very important invitation. So there was a 16-year-old... Um, the 16-year-old son of the owner of the farm where he worked, um, he invited him to come along to a local church event where they were talking about Jesus and what following him means. And the 16-year-old became a Christian as a result of that invitation. The 16-year-old, here's where the picture comes in, was a guy called Billy Graham. Who's heard of Billy Graham? Yeah, more hands, that's good. Um, You might not have heard of Billy Graham, but he was pretty much the, um, under, you know, in God's grace, the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. He... Uh, had huge impact as he shared about Jesus, lots of people became Christians. In fact, in the next photo, um, did you know that the biggest crowd ever at the MCG is not a cricket match or a footy match, it was actually Billy Graham's, a final night of Billy Graham's outreach event in 1959. Um, they don't actually know how many people were there. Some estimates say over 143,000 people were there. Um, it helps that they're on the grass, so you don't have to just be in the stands. Um, but it was a huge event and lots of people became Christians. Billy Graham had a huge impact. In fact, this, this morning, um, I'm not sure it'll work here tonight, but this morning in our services, I said, put your hand up if you became a Christian as a result of hearing Billy Graham speak. Is there any? Yes, James? Yep, so here we go. So James, you can have a Graham number of one. Alright, you might not have a Bacon number, you've never starred in a movie, but you can have a Graham number of one, I Teresa. I would say I have a Graham number of three because my in and her my life. Great. Because that's where I was going next. <laughs> I was gonna because it's it's harder to know. Teresa knows the impact on people who had an impact who shared faith with her. Um, but yeah, a huge number of people became Christians. A number of people became Christians and then became themselves leaders within churches and shared uh, Jesus with other people. And so, yeah, there were other people who put their hand up when I said, you know that you became a Christian through someone who became a Christian hearing Billy Graham speak. There's the Graham number of two or, th- or three. And a lot of us, we don't even know um, the influence, that uh, the way that God used uh, Billy Graham um, to impact our own faith. But here's the thing, there's not many Billy Grahams around, but Billy Graham became a Christian because a very ordinary person that no one here has heard of invited him to come along and hear about Jesus. And all of us, ordinary as we are, can offer that sort of invitation, and who knows how God will use that to impact others, to impact others, to impact others, to impact Teresa (laughs) Fidoc down the line. You don't know. God does that. Here's a warning, though. People may not respond positively when you offer an invitation. Have a look at how Nathaniel reacts uh, when his friend Philip says, come and see Jesus from Nazareth. What does he say? Verse 46, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Okay, so prejudices against different towns are nothing new. uh, And it seemed like Jesus' hometown had a pretty bad reputation. It was the Heidelberg West or the Frankston of the region of Galilee. Um, Sorry, probably just offended a bunch of uh, people potentially uh, here. But he had a very negative reaction when he was first invited. And I think that's really helpful for us because that's increasingly the sort of context that we're operating in as well. Last week I was at a conference run by one of our mission partners, CMS, the Church Missionary Society, they run a conference called Summer Under the Sun Uh, And there was a great talk by David Williams who's the training officer for CMS and he said, he was talking about how we try and share Jesus in our context in Australia and how our society is changing in terms of how Christianity is perceived. And he pointed out that if you're a Christian, you said you're a Christian um, 30 years ago, people's immediate assumption if you said you're a Christian is you are a good person. They might not have agreed with you In fact, they probably didn't agree with you, but they would have said, you're a good person. You're trying to live a good life, um, good on you for being a Christian. That is no longer the case, he said. Today, when you say, I'm a Christian, people are more likely to think you are a bad person rather than you are a good person. Increasingly, Christianity is seen as being manipulative, coercive and abusive. And it's often portrayed in this way um, in terms of our TV shows. So David, I I won't give his whole spiel, but he used examples uh, from Game of Thrones, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which was on SBS last year. Uh, And you you sort of see religion portrayed as being harmful, uh, anti-women, manipulative. And that's the perception that people often have. And then when we say we're a Christian, the immediate reaction is a negative reaction. The the younger generation in our church, you're more likely to cop this probably amongst your peers than our older uh, members in the church as they talk to their peers because it's a shift that's happening really within our culture. Uh, It's changing. But people's immediate reaction when we say we're a Christian is likely to be like Nathaniel's. Christianity, can anything good come from that? Now, I don't want to discourage us and depress us by saying it, but I think we've got to be realistic. And I think what's happening as our society shifts is it's just putting us more in a situation like what was actually faced by the first followers of Jesus in the early years of the church. It's kind of like we've gone through this whole period where Christianity's been sort of in the mainstream and well-received, but we're going back to a situation which is much more like how it was in the early days of the Christian faith. Now, what does Nathaniel do? Sorry, what does Philip do when he's faced with this negative reaction from his friend who's, you know, can anything good come from there? What does he say, verse 46? He says, Come and see. Come and see. People might have an immediately negative reaction when they hear about Christianity, when they hear about Jesus, but we need to say, See for yourself. Come and experience. Jesus for yourself, come and experience what the Christian faith is actually all about. In an increasingly anti-Christian age, people need to see and experience that actually Christianity is not abusive, coercive and manipulative. They won't just believe us when we say it, they actually need it to see it lived out in our actions, so that ups the ante on us who are Christians actually living in love for those people around us. Um, They need to see it exemplified in our community as a church, so when people come in, we should be looking different and living differently and receiving people differently. We need to apologise when we get things wrong, Uh, and we need to invite people to see Jesus for themselves, despite some of the negative things that they might have experienced or heard about the church. Come and experience Jesus. He's the one that we're trying to connect people with. Come and see Jesus. So what will people see when they come to Jesus? If they really get to know Jesus and experience what he's like, what will they experience? Well, again, have a look at Jesus' interaction with Nathanael, down in verse 47 now. Jesus and Nathanael have never met each other. This is their first time meeting, okay? But as soon as they come face to face, Jesus says to Nathanael, here truly is an Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus knows Nathaniel, even though he's never met him. He's able to nail his character and tell him what he's like. He basically says, "I recognise that you're a genuine person and you're not operating with hidden motives." Yes, Nathaniel is blunt in what he says. You know, tell us what you really think about Nazareth. Go on. Um, he's he's a straight talker and he's blunt but he's also open-minded and he's willing to examine new things. And, and clearly Jesus nails his character in one sentence because Nathaniel's immediate reaction is, how do you know me? Like, we've, we've never met, and yet the first thing you say to me, you kind of have nailed who I am as a person. And there's something here worth pausing and thinking about. Um, Philip brings his friend Nathaniel to Jesus But Jesus already knows stuff about Nathaniel, having never met him before. He already understands his heart, his character, and what's going on in his life. And the same is true as we introduce people to Jesus. Sometimes we think it's all up to us. We've got to do all this work to bring people to Jesus. But it isn't. When we invite people to come and see Jesus for themselves, to experience Jesus for themselves, Jesus already knows them. He knows their hearts. He knows their hurts. He knows their concerns, their griefs. He knows all about them. He knows them more deeply than we do, even if we're really good friends with them. God's already at work in their lives. His Holy Spirit is already working within people that he's drawing to himself. And if you're someone here uh, today and you're checking out the Christian faith and you're kind of interested in Jesus, this is true of how Jesus knows you too. Jesus knows your heart. Jesus loves you deeply. It's not like uh, you're a stranger to him. He knows you and he wants to uh, grow to know you and enter into a relationship with you. Jesus is already at work even if you can't necessarily see it yet. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, why is that the case? Well, it's because of who Jesus is. Uh, And one of the key themes in this chapter is about the identity of Jesus. As all these people come to Jesus, they start meeting him. The question is, who is this guy? Who's this guy who knows stuff about people? Who's this one that people just are following um, and introducing others and they're following as well? After Jesus nails who Nathaniel is, he then goes on and says, "Um, I saw you under the fig tree even before uh, Philip came and called you. Now, we have no idea what was going on under the fig tree. You can speculate about that over a cup of tea after the service. What actually was Nathanael doing under the fig tree that, when Jesus saw him, right? Because it's clearly not just a normal observation. Jesus didn't walk past and went, yeah, yeah, I, I saw you. Because the way Nathanael reacts is like he's stunned when Jesus says that. And he says, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So he uses these these two titles, Son of God and King of Israel, which are really ways at the time of speaking about the Messiah, the great king that had been promised to come and rescue people, that the nation of Israel had been waiting years and years for. So it's the same kind of response that we've seen throughout this chapter. So when when Andrew um, is called by Jesus and then he goes and tells his brother Simon, he says to Simon, we found the Messiah. we found this great king who we've been waiting for. And when Philip first goes to Nathaniel, he says that Jesus is the one promised by Moses and the prophets. So all of the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, is preparing for this great king who's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And Philip is saying, he's here. Jesus is this guy that we've been waiting for. And now when Nathaniel meets Jesus, he recognises it as well. And he says... You're the, you're the king, you're the king of Israel, you are the son of God. He recognises that he's this great king they've been waiting for, uh, that God has sent to rescue and to help them. And Jesus says, basically, if you're impressed by that already, if you're impressed by the fact that I say, I, I saw you under the fig tree and I know your character, if you're impressed by that, stick around, because you are going to see some great stuff. In fact, in verse 50, he says, you will see greater things. In verse 51, he says, you will see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is how Jesus kind of refers to himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Stick with me, says Jesus, and you will see so much more. Um, That reference there to heaven opening and angels going up and down sounds weird. Jesus is is referencing uh, a story which is in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, about a guy called Jacob who has a dream where this happens. He has a dream and heaven opens up and angels go up and down this ladder. Uh, and Jesus is, is, is kind of riffing off that or referencing that, but he's applying it to himself. He says, if you, if you stick around and if you watch me, you'll see heaven open and angels coming up and down on me, which is a way of saying, you are going to see that I am God's king, I'm heaven's answer to all of the problems on earth, stick around because it's going to be good. And it is. As these guys, Andrew, John, Simon, Peter, uh, Nathaniel and Philip, stick around, what do they see? Well, they see Jesus healing people who are sick or blind, restoring full health and bringing them uh, to the fullness of life. They listen and they hear Jesus teaching in a powerful and authoritative way, uh, teaching that cuts to the heart of the human predicament and shows the way that God wants people to live. As they keep watching Jesus, they eventually see him hanging on a cross where he bears the sin of the entire world on his shoulders, offering full forgiveness to everyone who trusts in him because, as John has said about him, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as Kirk spoke about a couple of weeks ago. And they'll see him, they'll touch him, they'll speak with him and they'll eat with him after he's risen from the dead, showing that he is in fact the great king that God has sent, defeating even death and offering the hope of eternal life for those who trust in him. Jesus says, stick with me, you will see greater things and greater things happen, incredible things, things that the world has never seen before that show that Jesus really is the king of the entire world, the one who has been sent by God to rescue us and to give us the fullness of life. So if you're investigating Jesus, this is the person that you will come and see. And if you're thinking of sharing Jesus and offering an invitation to other people to say come and see, this is the people that we're introdu- this is the person that we're introducing people too. This is who Jesus actually is. He's worth seeing. He's worth getting to know. He's, v- he's worth inviting people to come and meet. Because he already knows the depths of our hearts. He knows our character. He's the one who can deal with our failings, our sin, and take it away and give us life to the full. And he's the one who's even conquered death and can give us life that goes on forever, eternal life, that death cannot touch and defeat. That's the one that we want people to come and to see. So let me pray for us. God, thanks that as humans, you've created us for relationships, and all of us exist uh, in a whole stack of relationships with family, with friends, with people that we go to school with, with people that we work with. So please help us in those relationships to live out our faith in Jesus Help us to pray for those uh, that we know, uh, to be ready to answer questions when people ask us, uh, and to offer invitations that people might come and see Jesus. And we thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you that he is the king of the world, that he does know the depths of our hearts, each one of us. Uh, And we pray uh, that people would come to come and see who Jesus is and experience the fullness of life that he offers. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.